0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, we're doing the second part of the Phyllis Tickle Legacy podcast. Uh, if you didn't check the first part out with Tony Jones, let me tell you what's going on. We reached out to Tony a couple weeks ago once we heard the terrible news about Phyllis Tickle's uh, illness, and uh, we decided that... Tony's recommendation. Probably she couldn't do a podcast, so I wanted to talk to a couple people who knew her well to hear about her legacy. And so we talked to Tony a couple days ago, and today we've got Brian McLaren. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm about to record with him. uh, But first, let me tell you about our sponsor for this month. It's Abilene Christian University's Graduate School of Theology. The Graduate School of Theology is not just a school, it's a community, a community of learners and disciples curious about faith, History, and they're committed to becoming the hands and feet of Christ in our world. Now, they're not there to give you all the answers or tell you what to do, but the ACU Graduate School of Theology is here to teach you how to ask good questions, how to be curious and virtuous in your pursuit of knowledge. And so, if you want more information about the ACU Graduate School of Theology, I'd encourage you to check out the link on our Facebook page which will give you all the information you want to know about the Graduate School of Theology. It's a great place to go get an MA, an MDiv, or even a DMIN. They offer all those courses and more. Check them out on their website, acu.edu. Now, if you haven't liked our Facebook page, I would encourage you to do that. And if you haven't gone on to iTunes and left a review, it would be appreciated. Because let me just tell you about one review we got just a couple days ago. A gentleman who goes by the name of Eric Opp. I think that's his given name. He made a comment about uh, how I owe him. No, no, no. This is what he said. Luke mentioned another reviewer who has bought numerous books based on interviews from the podcast. Ditto, he says. Pete Rollins. There it is, Pete. You owe me some more money, Pete Rollins. But this is what the re- the reviewer, Eric Opp, says, but Luke wanted a cut of Pete Hensbook book sales. Well, I actually found the podcast by searching for Pete Hens because I heard him on a different podcast. Technically, my man Pete should get a sponsorship cut. Dot, 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 just saying. All right, Eric Opp, let me tell you something. Pete did get a cut for me. I went out and bought his Exodus commentary because I'm preaching third just a few weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, so all the riches he gets from that book, it went right to him. So there it is. That's the cut. Now, here we go. That's enough about me. That's enough about the podcast. Let's do the thing. Here it is with Brian McLaren. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today, we've got returning to the show, our friend Brian McLaren. Welcome to the show, Brian. Great to be with you again. Uh, you just got back from, uh, traveling. Is that right?
1: That's right. Where were you? Uh, I was in uh, Ireland, north of Ireland, with uh, Gareth Higgins and a group of about twenty four, twenty six folks from Canada, the U.S., one from Africa. Uh, we were having a combination of a pilgrimage to sites of conflict and peacemaking in the in the Troubles there, and uh, and some immersion in Celtic spirituality.
0: Wow, that sounds great.
1: That was great, a great time. The only only bad thing I brought a bad cold back with it. But <laughs> everything else was great.
0: Outstanding. It sounds like you uh, you do a lot of traveling these days. What What is your normal schedule like?
1: Uh, well, as somebody who does a lot of traveling, that's part of the uh, reality is that there is no normal schedule. But uh-huh. um, for the last, uh, let's see, 20, 15 or 20 years, I've probably traveled from 60 to uh, 90 or 100 days a year uh, where I don't sleep in my own bed. So that's a lot. I'm actually going to take my first travel sabbatical starting in this November. And I'll take 10 months where I, my goal is to be on zero airplanes or as close to zero as possible.
0: What are you going to do during those 10 months, then, if you're not traveling? Uh,
1: well, that'll be nice to find out. One thing is my wife and I will enjoy getting into a, a regular rhythm, uh, mm-hmm. and so that'll be great. Um, and um, I, I will have turned in my next book by then. and uh, So I, I hope to do some writing, but it'll just be writing for fun. I've actually got some fiction that I've been working on. Really? I focus on, yeah.
0: Obviously, uh, the book that most people got introduced to you by was um, A New Kind of Christian Witch, fiction. Is this the same type of fiction you want to write, or is it just out of the box?
1: Well, I've got a, uh, a bunch of different fiction projects I've actually, in various stages of a, either starting or being almost finished with. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a variety. There, there are a couple of things that are kind of in that, oh uh, what do you call it, educational fiction kind of a thing, maybe okay. that we might put in the same category. Yeah. Um, but I've got uh, one that's just kind of a pure novel, and uh, I've also got a couple of children's books I I'm working on.
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, tell me about the the pure novel. Give me who's the main character. Can, can I get that from out of you? <laughs>
1: well, it, it's a story about uh, a marriage, and um, the tentative title is a pretty good marriage, and it's a story about uh, a couple who uh, are are trying to figure out if they uh, can stay married and what that's going to look like.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: I was a pastor for 24 years, and, you know, in that amount of time, you spend a lot of time with conflicted couples, and you see, you know, there's kind of quiet heroism that comes out of couples when they negotiate tough times and show Hmm. some resilience. And so it's a story that explores both the pain and the hope and the choice of
0: all that. Well, you obviously have a background in English as well, and that phrase, a quiet hero, heroism, that's a great phrase right there. Oh, good.
1: Well, th- there's a lot of it in life, you know.
0: Yeah. Uh, Can you give me I, one example of a, a couple that you saw during your years as a pastor and thought, wow, that's quiet heroism?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I I, I, uh, I don't want to really spill anything from, <laughs> from the novel, but I'll give you an example that I saw in an airport recently. Okay. Okay. Um, I I was uh, sitting in a, you know, waiting to get on a flight. And uh, it was actually a transatlantic flight. And there was a mother who had a child, obviously, on the autism spectrum. And uh, somebody came up and just gave, and, and the child was acting out. The child was obviously stressed and was acting out. And somebody came up and said something snarky to the mother. And she just fiercely stood her ground and said, my child... Is on the autism spectrum. Uh, my child has difficulties. It's my responsibility to help my child be co- as calm as possible. And she just showed this fierce loyalty to her child. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought, how much courage does it take that mother to, uh, you know, m- to give her child a life and and uh, and keep going out in public and not let not let these stares and uh, yeah. and all the rest of others. You know, that to me was a quiet heroism.
0: Wow, that's great. Okay, I'm sold on the book. So, uh, when <laughs> when do I get my copy?
1: Oh, uh, that's it's a long time away.
0: <laughs> okay, well, when you do have it done, you're gonna send me a copy, and we'll work. We'll, we'll do a podcast about it.
1: That sounds great.
0: Okay, so let's talk uh, Phyllis Tickle. Um, we uh, we did a podcast with Tony Jones a, a few days ago, and uh, obviously, you were a contributor for the book that he put out, entitled Phyllis Tickle. Uh, I believe the the subtitle was Evangelists of the Future. Is that right? Yes. Yes. When did you get introduced to uh, Phyllis Tickle and and her work? Well, uh, I'm embarrassed
1: to say I I really hadn't discovered Phyllis as early as a lot of people. Uh, And the first time I remember hearing about her was, I think it was in 2005, when uh, I'm sure I'd seen her name somewhere in passing, you know, but I hadn't read any of her work. And, And my book, A Generous Orthodoxy, had come out. And apparently at some big book convention, um, someone asked her what was so what were some of the most important books of the year, and she mentioned my book. So somebody told me that. In fact, it might have been Tony Jones. Yeah,
0: he told that sure. story in the podcast just the other day.
1: So when Tony told me that, I just, I figured I better know who she
0: is. And uh, yeah, she sounds so, like a smart woman, right? Exactly. She had <laughs> great taste.
1: <laughs> so I uh, I think I read she had a memoir uh, on. I'm forgetting the title. It was so beautifully written, and then I became a fan of her uh, her books on the on the Divine Hours, and mm-hmm. uh, and of course read the manuscripts of the next few books that she came uh, came out with relating to emergence.
0: Yeah, well, in in the book that uh, Tony uh, edited, you you say that Phil Stickle became the leading participant observer and chronicler of what she calls the emergence church. Now yes. there is some debate over the word emerging, emergent, emergence. With your background in English, can you solve once and for all? What is the correct word to use to describe that movement group? Well, this is a matter
1: of great seriousness on the level of tomato or tomato. (laughs) Uh, You know, um, Phyllis actually had some sense of, uh, uh, you know, the different words applying to different things, and and that's fine. I'll tell you my sense of what happened was this. When, as soon as there became some traction over this issue of emergence – Um, a number of uh, evangelicals became very concerned. And so some of them tried to kind of put up a firewall that would say there are certain parts of this that are acceptable and suitable for evangelicals, and there are other parts of this that are unsuitable for evangelicals. So um, I think it was really concern about evangelical sensibilities that made people make a lot of distinctions in that regard. Um, I think, uh, uh, meanwhile, mainline... Uh, more mainline Protestants and the Catholics who were interested in this, in the kinds of things that were going on, you know, they didn't really care. It wasn't a big issue for them. Um, I think as time goes on, the, uh, among evangelicals, the initial wave of critique has kind of subsided. They've moved on to other uh, issues and groups to be concerned about. And I also think that to some degree, the more conservative gatekeepers have lost control of the conversation uh, you know as they've doubled down on uh, on continuing LGBT uh, stigmatization um, uh, you know I, I just think a lot of that concern has dissipated uh, so I think there's uh, among among evangelicals, there are those who double down on a more fundamentalist identity, and then there are those who I think now are happy to use whatever terminology
0: hm so you think it goes back to the gatekeepers and their delineating, these are the good people, these are the people who are out of bounds.
1: I think so, yeah. Um, there are a number of different ways this has been done. Um, uh, 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 words like accommodationist, revisionist, and so on, those become ways of saying uh, that people, are, you know, certain people have gone too far.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's talk um, the emergence search. We'll use emergence since this is an honor, Phil Stickle, but if I say the word emerging... Um, please no
1: yeah, one. yeah it'll be fine with me and and I should say Phillips Phyllis had great reasons to identify those different streams, and I think there's some value in it and if using terms helps certain people enter into a conversation without the added complexity of being associated with other people they don't want to be associated with I'm all for it yeah you know? all, all the- if, if it will get people eating tomatoes that's-
0: <laughs> okay well let's just talk do do you see uh evidence and gatherings that you would say this is the emergence church still going on today what is that what do you think it looks like today
1: well a couple of things i'll say um one is uh you know there's a kind of a bell curve that people draw uh, about the dissemination of innovation so you might have three percent who are you know the 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 real avant-garde and then about 17 percent that are um, the early adapters and then an early majority a late majority the the late adapters and the laggards. So you think of the 317 uh, you know, on, on either end and then uh, the majority in the middle. Um, I, I think uh, there are, uh, there's a continuing cutting edge uh, that, uh, of, because the work of emergence is never over really. But even in times of discontinuous, radical, faster-than-normal change, You know, it might take decades to to deal with issue after issue after issue that has to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and what's been very interesting is the degree to which uh, I would say every sector of mainland Protestantism has opened its doors wide to this conversation. I would say in the evangelical community, huge sectors have opened their doors wide as well, often though they can't do it publicly. So, um, you know, seminary classes, there are books that are read and so on. Uh, and uh, uh, and then in Catholic circles, it's very interesting that the, if you were to look at the, the, the shift from, let's say, Pope John Paul II and Benedict to Pope Francis, even though on paper you could find continuity, there's a shift in tone, a shift in feel, a shift in emphasis, a shift in the things that are main, major issues. And in some ways, Pope Francis would reflect the kind of emergence in Catholicism, I think. Um, you know, how far that goes, to what degree, you know, it's trimmed back, uh, I guess only time will tell. But, uh, yeah. So, so I, I see the influence very, very widespread. There are events like Wild Goose Festival and that, that I think become real sort of uh, kind of like the, the part of the iceberg that shows above the water. Yeah. But, but a lot's going on everywhere. And
0: so this. you you see the influences in, in, all over Christ- Christianity, where the emer- and, and outside of Christianity even that the influences are affecting that. But one of the things that that's- uh, actually, Luke, could I just
1: say? Yeah, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I, 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 here's here's the way I would say it. If if the Spirit is working and if we're responding to similar realities, we, I, I wouldn't want to say that there are the influences of mm-hmm. some certain group of people. But what you'd say is we see the influences of the spirit and the influences of the common uh, conditions, you know, popping up all over the place. And because I get to travel, literally, I've seen it from South Africa to Central Africa to the Middle East to the Far East, to all across Latin America. I mean, it it really is amazing how the the conditions are right for this to emerge, and that's why that language of emergence, you know, it, it carries with it this idea of, Kind of natural, organic mm-hmm. uh, development.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of the difference, so if you would compare, say, the mergence church and something like the Gospel Coalition, is yeah. that Just, there seems to be a reticence to put a label on ourselves that you'd find a lot of people that would identify within this group maybe privately but they wouldn't want to put a label on and say well yes i'm i'm emergence church as much as people would want to say yeah i'm in this group i'm you know gospel coalition or a29 or one of these other organizations that's far more uh, aligned with a conservative kind of flavor of christianity why do you think that is
1: well i mean it's part of the nature of conservative christianity to need gatekeepers to determine who's in and who's out and who's safe and who's dangerous Mm -hmm. you know when Mm -hmm. You know the, the I think one of the most useful definitions of a conservative is someone who has a lot to conserve, whether that's power, money, or the feeling that we're the only people who have the truth, and so we need to conserve it um, it's very natural that that there would be a lot of uh, energy expended on on boundary maintenance you know if, if that's uh, your mindset plus a huge part of the conservative Christian narrative and identity is we're holding the line against all the compromisers who are being influenced by the world. Um, you know, I, in my cynical moments, I'm prone to say, look, everybody's being influenced by the world. Conservatives are influenced by the world 50 to 300 years ago. <laughs> and, and progressives are being influenced by the world up to the present. You know, hmm. um, uh, there, There's another way to frame that whole thing, though, and say that if you're a Christian – you believe in incarnation, and the the scandal of the incarnation isn't just that it happened once, uh, you know, two thousand years ago, but that through the Holy Spirit, God is continually incarnating, and God never shows up late, hmm. so that we expect to encounter the presence of God and the work of the Spirit of God in the present. So we have nothing to fear about the presence about the present. Wow. And in fact, uh, this sense of conserving, I think, is actually. Uh, it, the sense of conserving that creates a kind of fear of the, of the present and the future and, and a nostalgia and a defensiveness about the past. I, I actually think it's antithetical to, to uh, or let me at least say, it's ambivalent in its relationship to the gospel. Hmm. Uh, you know, all that promise, God is doing a new thing. Um, the, Jesus saying, the spirit, I, there's many things I want to teach you, but uh, you aren't ready. The Spirit will teach you. Uh, that, that gives you a very different attitude toward, yeah. uh, toward the present and the future.
0: Definitely uh, far less fearful. W- what do you think it is that, that makes people f- you know, choose one side or the other? Do you think it's a, a disposition that is m- more, uh, more fearful that causes someone to go one direction than another?
1: Well, you're asking a really important question there, Luke. Um, and there's, there's actually been a lot of research on this. Uh, some folks will have heard of a, a guy named Jonathan Height, H-A-I-D-T.
0: Yeah, happiness hypothesis, uh, yeah.
1: And and uh, he's written about the, the righteous mind, and yeah. and there's all kinds of research on the different brain chemistry and brain activity of more progressive people and more conservative people, um, and so there's a whole lot of question about are some personality types more. prone to one and others. It's the brain chemistry that leads us more toward the other. But in any institution, and I I, I would define an institution in many ways, but one way is a community that lasts more than a generation. Hmm. The thing you have to realize is you might have the brain chemistry to be a conservative, and then you have children, and some of your children don't have that brain chemistry, right? So any institution over time tends to develop a more conservative wing, a more progressive wing. Uh, and And eventually, those tensions are always uh, they 're just part of human life. Um, there was some other point I was going to make about that, but
0: uh, <laughs> well the uh, book, I think the book you 're referencing is uh, the righteous mind yeah. that, that Hay put out, and highly recommend that. Uh, a lot of a uh, big fan of his work and, and so th- like, like you 're saying, sometimes like your kids are wired differently <laughs> from you, and that 's got to be one of the hardest things probably about some parents and their struggle with emergence churches that they might be wired to be more conservative. Their kids aren't, and they're trying to wrestle with how do we relate with a kid who has different leanings than I do?
1: That's right. That's right. And, um, and by the way, I think you can go back and see this tension right in the, in the scriptures. I think you could say that the priestly tradition tends toward being conservative Hmm. and the prophetic tradition tends toward challenging conservative assumptions so the priests come along and say look your sacrifices matter your tithes matter mm-hmm. your um, all that the prophets come along and say you know god desires mercy compassion mm-hmm. not sacrifice the prophets come along and say you can tithe all you want but if you don't show justice to the poor it doesn't matter at all you know so you see that tension in the scriptures The priests want to build a temple mm-hmm. the prophets say god doesn't isn't contained in temples I think one of the challenges for Christians is that we have this big problem that Jesus and Paul come along, and they clearly side with the prophetic tradition uh, rather than the priestly tradition. In some ways, they they let the prophetic tradition convert the priestly tradition rather than the priestly tradition domesticate the, the uh, prophetic tradition. I, I think this is a deep struggle in, in Christianity.
0: Okay, so... For those of us who've been a part of church for a while, maybe we're leaders in church, it seems like we would want to keep what we have going on. And so that priestly thing would be how our, our wiring is. But to maintain the ability to hear the prophetic and listen to the prophetic in our own lives, seems like it would uh, require us to give things away that we have that we really trust and like and, and empower us to have a certain way of life.
1: Well, look, uh, you and I are speaking just a week after the, the massacre in Charleston. And which has you know reopened a conversation that America has been determined to suppress and deny, which is the discussion about our history of racism and and an even deeper discussion that needs to happen is is the theological uh, underpinnings of american racism uh, and you realize that for uh, for american christians let 's go back to the late seventeen and first half of the 1800s um they were making boatloads of money on the slave trade on both trading slaves i hate to say it it sounds like livestock but it's a big part of the story breeding slaves Hmm. selling slaves uh importing exporting slaves and then first through tobacco and then through sugar and then through cotton you know we call them plantations they really should be called labor camps slave labor camps and um that's a part of our history, and it was all justified by the Bible. You realize that for people to change their theology would actually cost them money. And, um, and underneath so much of this, I think what becomes particularly insidious and difficult to grapple with is how, tr- how right Jesus was when he said, look, your basic choice. You want to serve God? You want to serve money. And, and we find all kinds of clever ways to serve money and then put God's name wow. on, the, on the God that we really trust and say, In God, we trust, you know?
0: Wow. Uh,
1: so it, this is, I, I think underneath, even more powerful than that conservative-liberal divide, is, is this choice that we make that Jesus named and
0: identified. It's money, which you don't have to read too much Marx to, to agree with that. What do you think are ways that we choose money over God today? Obviously, we don't have... Slaves. So, have we moved past that, or is that something that we continue to wrestle with?
1: Well, this is the issue that's on the forefront of a lot of our attention right now, um, and that is, uh, first of all, that. Uh, well, the, the simplest answer to your question is our new slave is fossil fuels, and so what we are doing now is we're creating a, a, an economy that's uh, based on a uh, a new kind of exploitation, and it's the exploitation of. Dead plants from millions of years ago, and that those fossil fuels are, uh, and and the whole economy that's based on them uh, is has created an unsustainable civilization. And I think Christians who care, who believe, when they pray, the Lord's prayer, "God may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." We'd have to say that um, human destruction of the planet, human, you know, acceleration into the extinction of species human destabilization of already uh, unstable economies that thrust poor people into great need, that's a spiritual issue. And uh, so I think we're going to have to face our own version of this in the century ahead. Are we willing to, based on our love for God, challenge an economic system that works really, really well for a minority of people, works quite well for another slice of people, but that ultimately hurts uncountable numbers of people, including the ones who haven't been born yet, who will be our own children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren.
0: Wow. So I, I'm imagining a, a slave owner, someone who, who grew up on the, the privileged side of slavery, yeah. could not imagine a future without slavery in it. They exactly. Couldn't, they couldn't imagine any other way than what they've experienced. Yeah. I, I kind of feel that way about what you just described. Like this is our world, this is our economy. I live in Texas. I've got people who are in oil business and uh, yes, so I, I mean I can't imagine a world without that.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and this is where it'll really get ugly, you know. And people always find a way to bring theology to the defense of any idea. Um, and uh, for example, I was just reading recently a, a famous Baptist pastor from the 19th century, Robert Dabney, when he was talking to other others. Here, here this isn't an exact quote, but this is quite accurate to, to uh, what he said uh, he said we have to use the Bible so that people believe to be against slavery is to be against the Bible hmm. and uh, they were very successful in that argument for a long long time uh, and uh, it's it, it, you know it's tragic it, I, for you as a Texan and, you know, in a state where evangelicals are so powerful to realize that on almost every issue evangelicals End up being on the wrong side of history I mean it's so uh, it's it, uh, it's so sad in this regard and we go back to slavery and ever since it's uh, you know I, I'm from an evangelical background myself, but you would just think it, it's sooner or later evangelicals will emerge from that uh, that way of using the Bible um, Catholics have the same thing in their history you know if you've never read uh, the doctrine of discovery you can google that and and see this deeply embedded Catholic teaching from Pope Nicholas V that had such devastating effects around the world. And uh, 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 Catholics had to emerge and are still in the process of emerging from that. This is part of the ongoing growth. You know, when Martin Luther uh, wrote the 95 Theses, he said that repentance isn't just for the beginning of the Christian life, it's for The whole Christian life is a life of repentance.
0: Oh, that's good. Uh, Richard Rohr, who's been on the podcast a bunch, uh, says, you know, I wish you Protestants would keep on reforming because you stopped. He needs to keep on going. Uh, So you said evangelicals have been on the wrong side. You know, some would look at obviously slavery, uh, you know, gender stuff. Uh, Clearly not on the right side of of that, or it sure seems that way uh, with a gender issue for most of us. Uh, What are ways that evangelicals can prevent themselves from continuing to be on the wrong side? Of these issues well
1: uh, you know uh, th- this is really at the core of I think of what Phyllis's work pointed to and I hope what my work is pointed to that um, evangelicals and, and people in the Protestant tradition and especially the conservative Protestant tradition followed Martin Luther in questioning the means of salvation. does salvation come b- through the means of grace and faith alone? Or is it through the means of the um, the uh, religious hierarchy and their powers and so on? Uh, and so they question the means of salvation. They did. Martin Luther and the reformers did not sufficiently question the definition and meaning of salvation, because in the Middle Ages, by, by the Middle Ages, in the Western Christian Church, not so much in the Eastern, but in the Western Christian Church, salvation had been defined as the delivery of souls to heaven after death mm-hmm. and, and the uh, solving of the problem, the legal problem of original sin. Okay. And, and you could say that, what, that at the core of emergence is a rediscovery that in the Bible, that's not what salvation means. Okay. Uh, in the Bible, salvation derives its meaning in the book of Exodus from uh, God's liberation of slaves from Egypt. So salvation isn't an escape plan out of history. It's a liberation and transformation plan within history. Uh, and if to the degree we get that, uh, emergence happens.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, you're talking about uh, asking some of these deeper questions, which you say in the book, uh, Phil's Tickle, um, "Evangelists of the Future, that it started off, the emergence search started off by – by discussing or by bringing together some young Christian leaders to discuss what church can look like, and then you realize, no, we've got to ask some bigger questions about theology, God, gospel, some of the stuff that you were just mentioning. What do you see as like the big questions that maybe we continue? We need to continue to ask the, the bigger questions that are still uh, haunting us that we need to continue to wrestle with.
1: <clears throat> oh, what a great question! Um, one that I know Phyllis care, uh, cares deeply about. <clears throat> Um, We've spent a lot of uh, money and time and energy in the last 30 years talking about what we do for youth and young adults, in some ways because they were the most frustrated and ready to change. Meanwhile, we've kept a lot of the same programs going for children and younger teenagers. So we end up reinforcing the same theologies and assumptions in the younger generation that we're trying to sort of fix and give therapy to for people who are a little bit older. So one of our big questions is what does spiritual formation look like for for from birth to, let's say, age 18 or 22 or 24? And and what does lifelong spiritual formation look like? Knowing what we now know, uh, and Richard Rohr has helped us a great deal with this, but knowing what we now know about the stages of faith development through life, and that, that to me is... That's just such an important question. And, 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 and this actually involved a collaboration between Phyllis uh, and me. Um, Phyllis approached me when she became the general editor for a series uh, called Return of the Ancient Practices that was addressing this issue of spiritual formation through practice and asked me if I would write the introductory volume, which I did in a book called Finding Our Way Again. If we start with the idea, a very evangelical idea, that our primary calling is to make disciples, Um, then we have to say, what is a disciple? How do you make one? How does that work through the seasons of life? And if that becomes your primary question, not how do we keep our churches in business, not how do we keep clergy employed, not how do we keep uh, institutions at their level of greatness that they were in the 1950s or whatever, you know. If our primary question is, how do we form authentic disciples or followers or imitators or apprentices of Jesus, then everything else goes up on the on the, on the uh, design table.
0: Yeah. I, I saw uh, that you have contributed to <clears throat> children's ministry curriculum. Yeah. My, our church has actually looked at some of that stuff. Is that uh, part of your work trying to, to work on the subject?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's something I care deeply about. Um, I, I think um, uh, in some ways we, we don't know what it would look like if we could start with kids from birth through age five and over the next 15 or 20 years – disciple them in a more holistic and deep, uh, deeper understanding of the gospel.
0: Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Um, what is the name of that curriculum series? I don't have it off the top of well, my head.
1: Well, uh, th- there isn't a singular curriculum, but I wrote a book called We Make the Road by Walking, and yep. a number of different groups are developing children's curriculum based on that. But then there's a whole group called Faith Forward. If yeah. people Google Faith Forward and, and my name, I suppose that would come up. And the Faith Forward people are, are trying to, uh, find folks around the world who care about this issue, encourage them to innovate, build relationships with publishers because we think we need dozens and dozens of experiments in this uh, and research and development in this whole area.
0: Yeah, and, and the book that you most recently published, the We Make the Road by Walking. Great, great idea for like a small group curriculum or a group of, which is I think is part of what you prescribe for the, for the book.
1: In fact, when I wrote the book, I, I, I had like an eight or ten year old child in mind when I was working on all the mm-hmm. discussion questions. Because I think uh, that uh, we, we have to f- find ways of including children um, and taking them seriously as members of the faith community. I remember years ago, uh, one of my staff, when I was still a pastor, uh, you know, took me aside and reprimanded me because I re- referred to children as the church of the future. And he said, hey, children are not the church of the future. They're just the youngest part, uh, and in some ways the part with the most potential, of uh, the church of the
0: present. Oh, that's good. Well, obviously whatever church is emerging, children are a big part of it. Um, okay. So there's one question that, uh, that I was asked on the internet that I wanted to uh, throw your direction and let you take your stab at it. Uh, but someone asked a question, uh, a listener of the show said, uh, okay, you talked about the emerging church and the emergent church. Um, what about the subject that no one wants to talk about? And that's the moral failure within the emerging church, the emergent church. Um, and I, I have no interest in talking about specific people or individual moral failure, but he, this listener seems to be pointing that like there is greater moral failure in this emergent church than maybe the evangelical church. Do you think that's even uh, an accurate description uh, Description, or, and if so, do you think there's a reason behind that?
1: Well, well that's the first time I've ever heard anything like that. Yeah. You know,
0: well, good. Well, I'll just throw it right at you right now, early in the morning. Yeah, no
1: I really I've not heard that before partly not because I think people in whatever emergence is uh not because necessarily they're any better than anybody else but just because so many traditional catholic and evangelical, you know, leaders have been I mean just last just a couple of days ago, you know, another very well-known evangelical yeah. leader was was all publicized. So I'm just a little bit surprised by that. Um <clears throat> so uh, I mean, the first thing I would say is, uh, as far as I know, nobody's got a great track record of um, of uh, of their actual morality living up to the, the morality that is often talked about. The only thing I can, uh, only other thing I could say about that is, I, uh, you know, in, in the group that I grew up in, you know, to drink a beer would have been considered a moral failure. No. Uh, uh, to say. Uh, crap would have been considered a moral failure, forget you know some other four letter words, so uh, you know people have different standards of this, but I think that question gets down to a deeper issue, and that is that we're at a great time of moral uh, re- redefinition that goes very deep. you know um we have some people who are very, very concerned about abortion uh, and i I 'm concerned about abortion. I think this cavalier attitude toward sex, cavalier attitude toward uh, uh, terminating pregnancies. I think that's not a, a sign of s- social and spiritual maturity. Um, but uh, then often those same people have a cavalier attitude toward destruction of the environment, extinction of species, uh, sub- subjection, subordination of women, stigmatization of gay people, uh, Islamophobia, and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, part of our issue is that when morality it is, uh, its locus is put in sexuality, I think we get into a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where a deep uh, rediscovery of spirituality in its deepest and most far-reaching dimensions will really help us. Let, let me say it like this. If we want a healthy ecology on planet Earth, and we suddenly have to we eventually have to turn in and face our inner ecology hmm. if there's greed and and uh you know inferiority and rivalry working in our hearts that's going to express itself ecologically um, and uh you know when we see uh, obesity spreading around the world i mean it's becoming a global health issue you realize That we're part of an economy that continually stimulates desires and then provides faster access to sugar, fat, salt that gives a a bigger uh, uh, dietary high. And then we realize we're doing the same thing with sex. We can sell products by selling sexual stimulation. And then we complain that people are sexually stimulated and acting out of that. And we never deal with the deeper issue that our entire economy is an economy of stimulating desire, stimulating desire. You know, Buddhism is often thought of as the religion that has the most to say about, about desire and its relation to suffering. But I think this is a treasure in Christian faith that's just waiting to be discovered and opened. But when we discover and open it, we're going to find that it critiques our entire economy, our entire civilization.
0: Hmm. I don't even know how to respond to that. That's brilliant.
1: Well, I, I... Uh, there, There's so much going on on the level of desire. And uh, uh, you, know, you think about from the story of the, the tree in the garden, you know, evangelicals and uh, cons- conservative Catholics as well have tended to be literalistic in the reading of that story. Put that aside. We know that that's just bad literacy. But when you pay attention to that story in a deeper sense, then you realize, yeah, reaching out and grasping a fruit. What better image is there about the stimulation of desire and the serpent who stimulates, you know, that desire? My goodness sakes, we built a whole uh, economy on, on that serpentine stimulation. You never have enough. You don't have as much as them. Somebody's having fun that you're not having. You need to have that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether it's a car or another sex partner, you know, it's, it's part of the same, uh, same, uh, desire stimulation economy.
0: Yeah. That there's always, there's always something else out there. There's always more that, that you want and you need. And if you don't get it, you're never going to be full. How, how do we frame the message of the good news in a culture that's constantly obsessed with wanting more and desiring more things they don't have?
1: You know, I, I one of the great blessings of my life was uh, I grew up fundamentalist and then became involved in the charismatic movement. And in the charismatic movement, there was a huge uh, a rediscovery of the joy of worship. And for anyone who spent time in charismatic circles, you know, the image of your hands raised up praising God and honoring God, in a sense, at the core of that kind of worship is saying, at this moment, I have enough just to be in God's presence, just to be celebrating the goodness of God. I often think that the raised hand in praise is also a raised fist in the face of people who are spending billions of dollars every day to make us unsatisfied. You know, really, properly understood, praise and thanksgiving is a refusal to have our insatiable desires stimulated. It's saying, I have enough at this moment. I have food. I have clothing. I have shelter. And with that, I can be content because I have God's grace. I have God's love. But I wish that we would uh, really discover how radical the simple act of praise and worship is.
0: Wow, that's good. I feel like there should be an invitation song after that. That, That's good. Hey, I'm going to let you get out of here. But, uh, okay, let me ask you one final question, and let's uh, let's circle back to Stickle, Tickle. Um, She makes, um, you know, she made the comment that, uh, or no, you write this in the book about her. Emergence. He says, "What emergence Christianity can or will become has not yet appeared." If you're going to imagine, what do you think it's going to look like five, ten years from now, as we continue the work that that you've done, that Phil Stickle has done, many others have done? What do you think the next five, ten years is going to look like with this this group continuing to emerge?
1: Well, let me say, let me give you two answers to that. I'm I'm going to give you the best answer second, but the first answer is, you know, I I often said that I think what's been going on for the last 15 or 20 years has been a critical conversation that prepares the way for a movement. Mm -hmm. I think when movements don't really happen until there are, are clear demands or proposal proposals articulated saying, here's what we're moving toward. Here's how to get involved. Let's get organized. Um, So all the talk in the last 20 years or so about conversation was necessary You have to have critical conversation to challenge and question the status quo, to create safe places for questions to be asked. And we need to remember that every day, tens of thousands of people turn 13 or 14 years old, and they grow up in a fundamentalist, Catholic, or Protestant background, and they need to now be given some freedom to ask some questions. Every day, tens of thousands of 35 or 45 or 65-year-olds, for the first time, gain the freedom to come out with our questions so to speak so all that conversation is important but when you go from conversation to getting organized that's when exciting things happen and and one of the things i'm thrilled with is to be part of groups of people who are now what, t- turning emergence into convergence meaning we're going to converge to try to get s- get some things done and um about that i just think that you know that that will take in some ways you know, I, I, I wish Phyllis could live another 15 or 20 years to see the full fruition of a lot of the things she celebrated and pointed to. But I think we're getting organized and that's going to happen. But a better answer to your question, <laughs> Luke, is to say that it's the wrong question. <laughs> because when, whenever we say, what do, what do we think will happen? And somebody like me answers, then people say, wow, I better adjust to that. And and what that does is it ends up disempowering us because it turns us into people who are only trying to adjust to uh, a predetermined future. I think what's far better is to say the future is not determined and what it will be depends on how each of us leverages our own life and voice and energy and time and and, uh, money. And when that happens, uh, then we all become uh, protagonists in the emergence of, uh, of a desired future. And uh, that is what I think Phyllis has been working for, and uh, all of us are continuing to work toward.
0: Ah, oh, that's great. And that is by far the best way someone's ever told me, Luke, that's a silly question. So thank you <laughs> for doing it. Brian, it's, seriously, it's an honor to talk with you. I really appreciate you taking the time, and thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Great great to be with you. Thanks we'll we'll
0: have you back on when that novel comes out. Uh, sounds like sounds like a good thing. <laughs> thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.